Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? Yesterday, which was October 4th, 2022, for those of you listening from the future, I finally got around to watching the Folding Ideas YouTube video titled, Line Goes Up, the problem with NFTs. And I cannot recommend that video enough. It is a phenomenal piece of work and it's substantial. It is longer than two hours. I think it's like two hours and 18 minutes of information about NFTs, cryptocurrency, blockchain. There's a bit about Web3 in there and more. Host Dan Olson presents a meticulously researched and well thought out takedown of all of these things. And I imagine he could and maybe will do something similar with metaverse concepts, which tie in into a lot of these concepts as well. And I think it's really darn amazing when you consider that his challenge, his channel is supposed to be about, quote, deconstructing the craft of visual narrative, end quote. And a lot of his videos are about things like how editing can make or break a movie and how certain narratives become hopelessly muddled because of bad editing and that sort of stuff. Um, really interesting to see him branch out into this. He's using his incredible ability to put together substantial arguments to focus on things beyond uh, narrative storytelling. And um, uh, those those videos, by the way, are also great. Uh, I've learned a lot by watching his videos. Anyway, Dan, I would say, is even more opposed to cryptocurrencies and NFTs than I am. And if you are a frequent listener of Tech Stuff, you already know that I'm not exactly a hype man for NFTs and cryptocurrency. Now, I couldn't possibly cover the material more thoroughly than he has. So I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go through and regurgitate the points he made. He makes them very well. And like I said, the video is fantastic. If you are at all interested in learning more about cryptocurrencies, blockchain, NFTs, all that kind of stuff, 
it's well worth a watch. Line goes up, the problem with NFTs. Uh, so instead, what I want to talk about is related. And it's something that he touches on in the video, which is critical thinking within the context of tech evangelism in general. So let's start off with the origin of the word evangelism, <laughs> because that's a tricky one already. It's rooted in religion. Specifically, it's rooted in Christianity. The concept of evangelism is to spread the gospel, with the end goal of this effort being to bring more people into the fold of the religion. Now, in more recent times, some folks use the word evangelist to describe an enthusiast who speaks about or writes about or you know, whatever. They communicate in some way their chosen focus of devotion in an effort to get more people to get into it. So you could be an evangelist for lots of different stuff, not just religion, although that, again, is where the word has its origin. You could be an evangelist for a sports team and try and get more people into watching a sport you like. Now, to be clear, being an evangelist isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm not trying to suggest that being enthusiastic and communicative about stuff is a bad thing. If it were, I wouldn't be a host of a podcast because that's essentially what podcasting is. You could be an evangelist for a great cause, for example. You could be spending time and effort to get more support for a worthy cause, and you might believe wholeheartedly in it. And any support you help build contributes to that cause. That's a good one. But an evangelist can be a bad thing, too. But it definitely can be a bad thing as well. The tools that someone uses to attract people to support a good cause are the same tools that can be used to attract people to supporting something less altruistic or predatory. Scam artists depend upon this. They use an evangelical approach pretty regularly, although they frequently target things like people's greed or fear in order to do it. And even folks who are not scam artists, who might actually believe in something because of their own investment, may use these tools to get other people on board, probably because they've already invested so much into this particular technology. So crypto is a good example of this. Now, I will not go so far as to say that crypto is a scam. Dan Olson might go that far. Um, and, you know, he makes a very strong argument. But I would say that cryptocurrency is just not a very good system. It's definitely not a good system for replacing currency. It does not do a good job of that. I think that's pretty clear. It's really not that good of a system for building wealth unless you were wealthy to begin with or you just happened to get in on the ground floor and when there was no expectation for it to go crazy and you just happened to make a ton of money that way. But for most people, it's not a good way to build wealth. But if you wander into crypto forums, you're going to see a lot of folks championing the philosophy of cryptocurrencies in general and then debating with one another which cryptocurrencies are great and which ones are garbage. And boy, howdy, there's an awful lot of disagreement on that topic. I bet you can guess what the, <laughs> the defining factor is. Whichever cryptocurrency you've invested in, that one gosh darn better well be a great one. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? Like, a big driver of cryptocurrency value is demand for that cryptocurrency. If there's a greater demand for the currency, then you typically see the currency's price go up. And it's a little more complicated and sophisticated than that, but that's kind of at the heart of things, at least for cryptocurrencies that are not directly tied to some fiat currency. So if folks get scared about a cryptocurrency, demand typically goes down and the value will go down too. And the more scared they get, the more it goes down. It becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It does this in both directions, not just when it goes down. So let's take a, a scenario, okay? Let's say that you have sunk tens of thousands of dollars, your life's savings, into a particular cryptocurrency. And let's say that you bought into this cryptocurrency when each unit of the currency was like five bucks. So five real world dollars to one of these cryptocurrency units. Now, when this unit first launched, before you got into it, its value was at fractions of a penny. 
per unit. So if someone got into it initially, then they would have seen their investment grow to incredible amounts by the time it gets to $5. So if you had bought it when it first launched, you would be wealthy beyond measure. But you didn't. You're in now when it got to $5. And in fact, that was when you bought in. Now we're a little further along. And let's say that right now, that value has actually dropped down to $3. Now you hope this is just a momentary dip and that the cryptocurrency is going to increase in value again, maybe increasing at that exponential speed it did when it first got huge. But there's no way to really know if that's going to happen. Well, you would have a pretty strong incentive to talk positively about your investment. For one thing, there's the dreaded sunk cost fallacy. This is a tendency to stick with a strategy because you've already heavily invested into that strategy. And you stick with it even if it becomes obvious that if you jump ship, you would be better off. Uh, by the way, while we talk about sunk costs a lot in financial matters, I argue that the same thing is true with like emotional investment. If you've ever been in a relationship, whether it's a romantic relationship or a friendship, but you knew, you kind of knew you would both be better off if you kind of split up, but you've already invested so much emotional capital into this relationship that you can't bring yourself to, to do that. That's very similar. That's essentially the sunk cost fallacy. So if you've invested tens of thousands of dollars into this cryptocurrency, and then this cryptocurrency drops in value by 40%, well, that means you lost 40% of your investment, right? Your investment is 40% down. And while you could get out with the 60% remaining, uh, minus any transaction fees, that doesn't really feel good, right? It doesn't feel good to get out of the system with significantly less money than when you went into it. Especially when you know that folks who jumped into this cryptocurrency wagon before you did had made out like bandits. People who bought it when it was fractions of a penny per unit, they made hundreds of thousands of dollars. Don't you deserve that money too? Don't you deserve to be a bandit? Huh, Smokey? So that's one incentive that, you know, you have invested this money. So you, you have an incentive for you to stick with it and try and get it to turn around. Maybe you actually really believe in this cryptocurrency. Maybe it's not just a, here's an opportunity, I'm going to jump on it, but that you actually believe in whatever the cryptocurrency stands for. There are people who do that, um, but there are a lot more who are just kind of opportunistic. So you might start to feel sick because you've lost so much money in your investment. Maybe you go into the crypto forums and you're really cheerleading the currency. You're trying to get other people excited about it. And if others do, they might buy into the currency and maybe that will drive up the value, which means those lost investment dollars would start to filter back. If you could build enough momentum, you might push the value further than the five bucks it was at when you bought it. And then it's to the moon, baby. You'll be rich in no time. But here's the thing. This kind of operation is frighteningly similar to scams like pyramid schemes or multi-level marketing schemes. Now, I, I use the word scams and I use the word schemes because in my mind, that's kind of what they are. But MLM businesses, technically, if they're actually selling a real thing, are viewed as a legitimate form of business. I just find it really similar to scams to the point where I'm very uncomfortable by them. Now, if you aren't familiar with what MLM schemes are, <laughs> I'll fill you in. So, Essentially, you make money in one of two ways or in both ways. So one is that you get recruited into an MLM. Someone convinces you that you should join this business. And then it becomes your job to sell something to people. Uh, let's say it's cosmetics because a lot of MLM companies are in the cosmetics business. So you start to sell cosmetics to folks, maybe mostly through word of mouth and like selling it to friends and family. And you get a portion of each sale you make. Now, you might actually have to spend your own money to get your supply, though obviously, you know, you're buying supplies at a lower cost than what you sell them to to other folks. So that's method number one of how to make money. Method number two is that you recruit other people to join the company. 
you essentially become their sponsor. So you are now sitting upstream of those recruits who are downstream from you. And now you get a little piece of every sale they make. When they make a sale to someone else, you get a little, you get a little portion of that sale. Upstream from you is your sponsor, the person who recruited you into the MLM. They get a little piece of every sale you make. And you do this so on and so forth until you get to the very top of the chain where a precious few are reaping in lots of these little slices of pie from all the recruits who are downstream. These are the people who are actually getting wealthy off this because they're getting a cut off every transaction. And even if that cut is teeny tiny, it adds up as the the organization grows. And that means for the folks at the very top, there's this huge incentive to push for more recruits. Now, you do still need to sell stuff or at least have recruits buying supplies from you. Otherwise, you don't have revenue coming in. But the more active people you have in the system, the more money you can make. So a huge part of your business strategy comes in the form of recruitment strategies. Similarly with crypto, folks who have large holdings in a currency would love more people to come on board because it can boost the value of the individual unit and it can make their own substantial investment grow significantly. It's also not nearly as easy to extract yourself from a cryptocurrency market as you might think. That means that once you've bought in, you might not feel like getting out is a good risk. You might feel like, uh, if I get out now, I'm going to lose out on future growth, or I might have to spend so much in transaction fees that I'm really cutting into whatever profit I made. Or with certain cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, the transaction process takes long enough that it's possible you'll actually see a significant loss of wealth from the moment you start a transaction to the moment it finally concludes. Okay, we've got some more to talk about when it comes to critical thinking and tech evangelism, but first let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. Now, one of the things that you'll hear in cryptocurrency forums whenever a given cryptocurrency is having a rough go of it is you'll have a group of folks telling everyone to HODL or H-O-D-L or hold on for dear life. Essentially, what they are saying is, hey, don't dump your coins now. Just hunker down. You can wait this out. Things will be fine. They'll get better. And then to the moon. And that sounds like good advice, right? But it's really reinforcing that sunk cost fallacy. There's no guarantee that things will get better. Maybe they will. Maybe they'll get better than they've ever been before. We've seen that with Bitcoin several times, where the value grew to incredible heights, crashed, and then grew even more. Um, If it does that again, then that means we're going to see Bitcoin go over $60,000 per unit if it repeats that cycle. The problem is there's no guarantee that that cycle will repeat. There's nothing inherent about cryptocurrency that makes it reliable for this sort of cycle. It could happen, but maybe it won't. And so that sunk cost fallacy really starts to to weigh on you. A lot of people will give this advice because they have their own significant investment in that virtual coin. So they don't want to see people jumping ship because every time that happens, there's the potential for the, the coin's value to decline even further. That would hurt their own investment. So they have an incentive to keep people on that currency and try to convince more people to join in. They you know, There's also the, the phrase, buy the dip, meaning when cryptocurrencies go low, that's when people should be buying more because that's when they're going to see the biggest return when the cryptocurrency recovers its value. If it recovers its value, then yeah, sure. If it recovers its value, and it may be that, you know, again, you bought it at $5, it's now at $3. So you're telling people, hey, buy now because it's going to go up. You're kind of trying to create a self-fulfilling prophecy to make that happen. So my point here is it's always good advice to think critically about tech evangelist claims. And I, I know I've picked on cryptocurrency a lot so far in this episode, but it's really true for pretty much all technologies, particularly ones that are early on in the hype cycle. That might be the metaverse. In fact, I would say the metaverse is a really good one to think critically about. VR, AR, both of those are good to think critically about. I'm not saying they're bad technologies, but that you have to critically evaluate claims about the technologies. Same is true for AI or really any given tech product. Now, I am not saying that tech is worthless or anything close to that. I'm saying that you need to examine the motivations of tech evangelists to understand where they're coming from, what is incentivizing them to evangelize this particular technology, and to keep that in mind when you start to evaluate their claims. It may turn out that their claims are perfectly valid, uh, but it may turn out that they're somewhat biased (laughs) or really biased. So if someone comes up to you and says, hey, the metaverse is going to be huge. Look at how many companies are getting into the metaverse. Well, that's true. There are a ton of companies that are all trying to get into something related to the metaverse. But you might want to ask questions like, how is the person who's 
telling you this? How are they connected to the metaverse? What is their investment in it? Maybe they're just an enthusiast. So it's an emotional investment. It's not a financial investment. And it might just be that this is a person who's been swept up in a lot of hype. Honestly, that's very easy to have happen. I've had it happen to me lots of times. I am not immune to it. I, I think I'm getting slightly better at recognizing it early on and then adjusting expectations, but I'm not perfect by any means. Or maybe it's that this person runs a virtual real estate business and they're kind of hoping you're going to plop down some real world cash to buy some virtual plots of land that may or may not ever be connected to a notable virtual landscape in the metaverse, assuming we ever get something like that then, you know, maybe it would pay off in the long run, but there's no guarantee. And again, like, we're still in a, a space where metaverse doesn't actually mean anything yet. There's too many conflicting ideas and definitions and approaches. So buying into something specific right now is really taking a long shot. Like, if you're going to do that, you might as well just be ready to say goodbye to that money. Maybe it pays off, which would be fantastic, but there's a real good chance it won't. So just like if you go into a casino where the house always wins in the end, you need to just sit there and say, all right, this is money I am comfortable losing. I am not going to suffer if this money is gone forever. I might as well just assume that it is gone forever. And if it turns out otherwise, that will be a huge bonus. Or maybe a tech evangelist might tout a particularly interesting aspect of a technology, but they might fail to mention the whole story. Or maybe they don't even know the whole story. So for this, I'm going to touch on something that Dan Olson talks about in that video I mentioned at the top of the episode. So with NFTs, one of the benefits you'll hear about, this is a benefit that's often marketed toward artists, is that the person who mints an NFT, which again stands for non-fungible token, the person who mints a token can get a piece of every future transaction involving that NFT. So let's say you are an artist and you create a work of digital art and you mint an NFT to represent this piece of art, uh, which by the way, exists independently of the NFT. The NFT itself isn't the art. It's a smart contract that represents the ownership of that art. And by ownership, I mean of that instance of that art. It gets really granular. So you sell this NFT to someone for 10 whole dollars. They now have a token that says they own that instance of your digital art. Good. But then let's say that there's this, uh, this crazy NFT boom right? People just go nuts speculating on NFTs. You've already sold your NFT for $10. The person you sold that to then goes on and resells that NFT, but they sell it for $10,000. In the real world, if this were to happen, if you were an artist and you sold your painting for 10 bucks, and then later on, the person you sold it to was able to offload it for 10 grand, you probably wouldn't see any of that money right? Because you already sold the painting. You're, you're out of luck. Now, the best you could hope for is that there would be a jump in interest in your work and that future sales that you would make would net you more revenue. But with certain NFT marketplaces, like whichever marketplace you initially meant the NFT in, the creator can get a portion, a royalty, as it were, of each future sale of that token. So let's say you sell your NFT to buyer one. Buyer one sells to buyer two. And some of that sales price will actually go to you, the person who minted the token in the first place. Buyer two sells the same NFT to buyer three. And again, you who minted the token gets a little cut of that. It's ongoing passive revenue, which is the dream. You hear about that a lot online. Ways of creating ongoing passive revenue. That, by the way, that's a, that's a phrase that should always raise red flags and prompt you to think critically about what is being sold to you. But that's another topic for another time. Here's the thing about the NFT model. 
Because I mean, that is true. Like if you, if you have this in this marketplace, yeah, you can, you can keep on getting little cuts of each sale, except it only applies to whichever NFT marketplace you minted the token in. The royalty system isn't built into the NFTs themselves. It's built into the marketplaces where the NFTs are bought and sold. So nothing stops someone from taking an NFT out of one marketplace and then putting it up for sale into another marketplace. So if buyer one purchases the NFT for 10 bucks from you, but then they move the NFT to a different marketplace and they sell it for $10,000, well, then you're not getting any passive revenue because it's no longer on the marketplace where you minted it. And the royalty system doesn't work across marketplaces yet. I say yet because it potentially could in the future. It just doesn't. Now, you might think, okay, but how often does that scenario pop up? I mean, usually it's just going to stay in the same marketplace, right? Well, there's another issue at play here, and that's transaction fees. This is how marketplaces make revenue. They put on a transaction fee for any transaction that happens within that marketplace. The same sort of thing is like credit card transaction fees, right? This means that someone has to pay a little bit extra for this transaction to actually happen so that when buyer two buys from buyer one, this transaction fee also has to be covered. So a lot of buyers would prefer to do private transactions, but directly between digital wallets and just avoid marketplaces entirely. And that way, the transaction is just for the actual transaction. There's no fee on top of it. That way you don't have to spend extra money just to cover a fee. And when you switch to private transactions, the person who minted the token is left out of the whole process. No royalties, in other words. So while the royalty idea is great and it addresses an issue that digital creators encounter all the time, the execution is actually not that great. And it doesn't really solve the problem. But it sure does come across as a cool selling point for NFTs. And if you're someone who is dependent upon making money by selling NFTs or by driving up the value of NFTs so that your own purchases aren't a sunk cost, you are likely to talk up this feature even if it doesn't, you know, work so good. Now, all that being said, there are folks who are constantly working on evolving these smart contracts within NFTs so that it might be possible that one day this will be fixed. It will be addressed the royalty system will be more robust and NFTs will fulfill the promise that people are making right now. It's just that right now, they don't do that, right? Not in every case, not as long as anyone can take something off of one marketplace and put it on another. So I would say don't count on the problem being addressed right away and keeping that in mind so that you don't just, you know, fall into a system that doesn't work as well as what people are promising. All right, let's talk about a different scenario in which critical thinking comes in really handy. And this is one that I totally failed. Uh, ultimately, I did come around, obviously, because I'm talking about it now, so I have awareness about it. But initially, I did not consider the big picture properly. I did not think critically when it came to this topic. And I'm talking about autonomous cars. Around a decade ago, I was really, really hyped for autonomous cars. I, I was convinced it was right around the corner. We were going to have driverless cars that no one would ever have to drive again, that traffic accidents would become a thing of the past, that we would have these incredibly efficient systems all across the world. And when I was thinking about the discrete components, I could see why I was all swept up into the idea. But over time, the veil fell from my eyes. <laughs> and I realized that this is a much harder challenge than I gave it credit for when I was first thinking about it. All right, I'll talk about that whole process after we come back from this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. 
on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's talk about how I got swept up into the hype of autonomous cars. My thinking was, well, of course a computer would be better at driving a car than a person would. I I was thinking about driving a car strictly in the sense of reaction times and perception, right? A person has limited perception. You can only see a certain field of view, and that's just whichever direction you happen to be facing. You can only hear so much, right? There's an entire world around you that you cannot directly perceive all the time. Anything that's outside of your peripheral, you can't directly see it. And you have to rely on things like mirrors to compensate for that when you're driving, right? That's why you have side mirrors and rear view mirrors. So you use the mirrors to help compensate for the fact that you don't have eyes in the back of your head, even if you are a mom. I'm on to you, moms. I know you don't have eyes in the back of your head. Now, these mirrors have blind spots, right? Just because of the way the car is designed. So even with the mirrors and even checking mirrors frequently and being alert, you're going to have flawed perception. You cannot have perfect perception. It's just impossible. You can be really, really careful, but even the most careful driver is going to have blind spots. But a car 
with a sophisticated set of sensors? Well, in my mind, I was like, well, it could have 360-degree vision all around the vehicle at all times. In fact, it could even have it so that it has vision above the vehicle, well beyond what we humans can do. And that would be phenomenal. It means that the car would be able to detect every possible obstacle all around it constantly. Then when it comes to reaction times, you know, we, we have a problem with latency when it comes to perceiving something and then being able to act. Now, it all depends upon the sensory input we get. Uh, if it's by touch, we actually are able to react much faster than if it's visual. I think by touch, it's like 150 milliseconds. Visual stimuli, it's like 250 milliseconds. That's a quarter of a second. Now, a quarter of a second is fast. Don't get me wrong. But if you happen to be traveling in a vehicle that's going 70 miles per hour, then a quarter of a second lag between seeing something and being able to react can potentially mean the difference between avoiding an accident or being in one. Computers obviously can react much more quickly than humans can. So, of course, in my mind, an autonomous car would be better at avoiding accidents than humans, right? That just makes sense. They're able to see everything we can't. They're able to react faster than we can. That was my thinking. But I didn't take into consideration that the decision-making process is a really, really complicated one, and that perception is more than just seeing. Perception is more than just, I recognize there's something in front of me. It's recognizing the nature of that thing in front of you and then being able to decide what to do about it. So we humans, we can make decisions really quickly. We're good at that, generally speaking. It's not always the right decision, but we're really good at making them. We're also pretty good at adapting to new situations. We can draw on experience from even situations that might only be remotely similar and be able to use that to guide us into a course of actions. We're good at discerning the difference between a threat, such as, say, a piece of a car's bumper laying across a lane of traffic, and something that's not a threat, like some leaves that are on the road. But computers do not have this native capability. And so one huge challenge with autonomous cars is training systems to recognize situations where emergency measures should be taken versus ones where things should just proceed as normal. If a car applies the brakes suddenly because it thinks that a floating plastic bag ahead of it is a solid obstacle, the car might cause an accident on the roads because it stops short when it shouldn't. Similarly, if a car fails to detect that a semi-truck is crossing lanes of traffic, tragedy can strike. We know this because we've got examples of autonomous vehicles, or at least vehicles operating in advanced driver assist modes, where the vehicle failed to detect a semi-truck that was crossing lanes of traffic, possibly because the system misinterpreted the side of the truck to be the horizon. And as a result, the autonomous car crashed into the truck and the driver in the autonomous car died. And as time has gone on, my initial enthusiasm for driverless cars has been tempered by the reality of how complicated this challenge really is. I've learned to be a bit more skeptical about autonomous car systems. And it's not that I think we aren't going to get there. I think that we will eventually, but... I now realize that my initial perception of the nature of the challenge was way too narrow in scope. I was being naive. I was thinking of the typical situations that you might find yourself in when you're driving down your average road. But the truth of the matter is that driving conditions vary greatly from place to place and at different times of year and unusual events can happen at any time. Now, that unusual event might be something really dangerous. It could be like mudslides or rock slides, that kind of thing. Or it might be something more benign, like some leaves are being blown across the road. But while we humans can interpret those things very quickly and then react appropriately, computer systems don't magically have that ability. That was just something I did not consider. Now, I definitely use critical thinking when I consider driverless cars today. And I recognize that there are some really sophisticated systems out there that within restrictive parameters work incredibly well. 
but they still need those restrictive parameters. They're not capable of operating in every region and every condition with incredible uh, accuracy and reliability. But back in those early days, I was really a tech evangelist. I loved the idea of driverless cars virtually eliminating car accidents. I mean, that means tens of thousands of people would not die from traffic accidents each year if we had reliable driverless cars. Hundreds of thousands of people would not be affected by the sudden loss of a loved one. And then the benefits ripple out in ways we can't even imagine. Those people continue to be able to contribute to society. We don't have these these, uh, 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 hits, financial hits, that come with the, the fact that we have these traffic accidents. You have all these different things that are are great if you're able to eliminate accidents. So, of course, you would want that kind of future. I mean, that's a future that that I think everybody would long for. But as beautiful as the potential is, that doesn't necessarily make it any closer to reality. Just because we want something to be true doesn't mean it is true or that it's even close to becoming true. In fact, that's when we really need to use critical thinking to make sure that the thing we want is, in fact, possible and not just some diversion. Like, just because you want that cryptocurrency to go up doesn't mean it's going to go up. Just because you want to buy an NFT and and make a huge amount of money doesn't mean that's going to work either. Just because you want a web system that is divorced from the massive companies that currently dominate the web, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, doesn't mean that the new system won't have its own pillars of centralized authority, right? Just because you change one thing doesn't mean that it's actually better. It may just be different. Anyway, if you're someone who loves tech and gadgets and whatnot, I think that's awesome. I mean, I still do love tech. I love gadgets. I love learning about technological systems and how they work and sometimes how they don't work in quirky ways. I don't think we should just give up on tech. I don't think we should be unenthusiastic about technology. I don't think we should just automatically shut down if we hear someone talk a technology up. I don't think that that's, you know, the right course of action either. If someone comes up and says, hey, I really love this new phone, you don't just automatically just say, ah, shill, and turn around and walk away. But you should engage in critical thinking. Ask yourself and ask others questions about the various claims and promises. Look into them. Really examine them. Find out if the things that are being promised are even possible. Like Theranos should have taught us all that this is something we need to do on a regular basis. That company reached the levels it did because people failed to ask realistic, critical questions. And a lot of people lost a lot of money because of it. And some people are going to jail because of it. If the tech holds up to whatever level of scrutiny you've given it when you started to ask these tough questions and all the answers are pointing to great things, holy cats, you are onto something. Hold on with both hands. That's awesome. Maybe it doesn't hold up entirely. Maybe it fails in a couple of respects. But really, that could just mean that your expectations are now more realistic. Maybe you still want to adopt the technology, but now you know what its limitations are. And so you're not disappointed when you run up against them because you're aware of them. You ask the right questions and you're you're not expecting it to do something that it cannot do. Or maybe you find out the thing you thought sounded cool really has nothing going for it and you avoid stepping into a trap. Whatever the outcome, you benefit from the use of critical thinking. I really do think critical thinking is something that needs to be taught formally and I think it needs to be taught early. I did not really encounter it until I was well into high school and really more into college. And I feel like I would have benefited from that perspective much, much earlier on than when I was exposed to it. Because, well, especially as a teenager, I was resistant to ideas that I didn't already have. Because, you know, that's awesome. Uh, I'm not proud of that, but it was a phase 
And I think a lot of people go through that. So if it had been introduced earlier, I'm not saying I still wouldn't have been a little jerk as a teenager, but maybe I would have been a critically thinking one. Um, anyway, I know I just did a rerun where I talked about critical thinking, and I know that people can get a little tired of this topic. But when I see examples pop up over and over that really reinforce the idea that folks are failing to think critically, I feel like I need to talk about it again just to reinforce that and to remind people. And it's okay if occasionally you fall short. I still fall short all the time. But it's good to try and keep it in mind because it might mean you avoid calamity in the future or it might mean you actually find the next big thing. But if you don't think critically, that becomes way more a matter of luck than of actual determination. All right, that's it for this episode. If you have suggestions for future topics, there are a couple of ways you can get in touch. One is you can go to the iHeartRadio app. You can navigate over to Tech Stuff. Uh, the app is free to use. It's free to download. Just go to the Tech Stuff part. You know, use a little search engine. Go over to Tech Stuff. There's a little microphone icon. You click on that. You can leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. And at least for the time being, you can still go to Twitter and send me a message, uh, Tech Stuff HSW. Uh, I'll be talking tomorrow about Elon Musk again and Twitter because that story has changed again. In fact, it changed yesterday, but it changed after I had already filed my podcast. So that's the thing again. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But anyway, yeah, get in touch with me. Let me know what you would like. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.